Welcome. You're listening to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. On today's episode, we're going to dance through the streets of New Orleans as we learn about the history and practices of the second line. The first line would be the family, the mourner, you know, the, the family themselves and the band. And then the second line was the name for all of the mourners that would follow along behind. And in the way the way the old funerals went was that they played somber dirges and hymns on the way to the cemetery. And when they got to the cemetery and after the burial, on the way out of the cemetery, the band would start pay, playing more lively tunes and the second line folks would start dancing oh. as a celebration of life. You just heard Judy Cooper, a longtime New Orleanian and second line photographer, explain where the term second line came from. Judy recently published an amazing photo essay book about second line history and practice called Dancing in the Streets, Social Aid and Pleasure Clubs of New Orleans. During a recent visit to New Orleans, we stopped by the historic New Orleans collection in the French Quarter. That's where we met Judy Cooper and Eric Seaforth, a historian co-curator of the collection's Dancing in the Streets exhibit. Judy and Eric, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on World Footprints. Thank you for having Thanks. us. Yes. So I, I love uh, the work that you've done about the second lines. And I want to ask, uh, first of all, Judy, what is a second line? A second line is a street parade with a brass band. And these are clubs, the social aid and pleasure clubs, uh, they call themselves, uh, in the city. There are about 50 of them. And each one parades once a year on a set date. Now, I know, um, I think a lot of people may confuse the second line with Mardi Gras Indians, are they one and the same or are they distinct they are, clubs? They are totally distinct, totally distinct. These are, um, as I said, they're, they're social aid and pleasure clubs and each one will put on a parade once a year. Uh, they get all dressed up. Um, the men wear uh, either very colorful suits or shirts and pants and matching hats and uh, shoes and gloves and mm. carry uh, big fans and other uh, paraphernalia uh, that they wave as they dance through the streets to the to the music of a brass band. And one of the unique things about the second line parades is that uh, the spectators don't just stand on the sidewalk and watch them go by. They fall in behind the band and everybody dances through the streets for four hours. Oh, I, I on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine standing still with a, you know the music. You, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely cannot. Even me as a photographer, I couldn't stand still. <laughs> so, Eric, what is the backstory of the Second Line? How did they start? Well, um, you know, there's a long tradition in town of uh, parading and musical processions. That um, goes back really to the founding of the European city uh, here. Um, in the early 18th century. Um, if you fast forward a little bit uh, to the uh, 19th century, uh, there are a lot of um, 
different kinds of voluntary organizations, specifically for um, African-Americans, Afro-Creoles in the city. Um, I say voluntary, these are like benevolent associations or mutual aid associations, mm -hmm. um, meaning their members provide each other with social services. Um, they meet and have events as well, and there are also a number of fraternal organizations. Um, these groups continued throughout that century and, and after the Civil War, um, of course, you get an influx of a new population of African-Americans in the city, particularly leaving the um, plantations and coming into urban areas. This happens across the South. And it results in an explosion of clubs of this kind. And this is uh, happening um, in the city among all different types of groups. There are women's literary clubs and uh, social clubs. There are unions forming. Uh, there are all kinds of fraternal organizations. Um, we think by around 1900, there's something in the order of 200 to 300, mm -hmm. specifically black clubs made, made up of Afro-Creoles and African-Americans in the city. And a lot of them start parading as, their, as one of their events, uh, whether it be an annual parade, uh, they may put on parades, uh, funeral parades when somebody passes away. Um, we know, for example, one of the, the oldest current uh, club that still practices, um, Young Men Olympians Junior, they date to the 1880s and their founder tells us that their parading tradition started uh, with uh, funeral parades put on for the musicians in the club and after a while they uh, embraced having annual um, anniversary parades to celebrate the anniversary of the founding of the club. Um, Another example from that period comes from Economy Hall, and I know you've yes. talked with yeah. uh, uh, Fatima. Yeah, yes. and I don't know if she mentioned this, but in, in the, the club minutes that she has in the 1870s, you can see in French them talking about having an annual parade as one of their main events. And they say, well, what kind of music should we have for the parade? And they kind of stumble around a little bit with the language, but end on brass band in English. There's no French word for kind of this type of music. So that really shows this kind of um, French, American, uh, African influence coming together um, to form this unique style of, of performance and this unique style of procession and celebration. Um, so those just kind of continue and, and, and they grow into the 20th century in mm -hmm. different ways, but um, um, that's, that's kind of the foundation of, of the clubs which make up the, the backbone of, of Second Lines. Judy, as a photographer, your book, Dancing in the Street, captures this rich culture, this, this rich history, and brings it to life in ways that perhaps haven't uh, been seen. What attracted you to, to, to the second line, to these uh, social clubs, as uh, uh, the subject for this book? What was it about it uh, from, from the photography or the the photographic eye that brought you to this? Uh, the, the, their color. Um, I, I actually have always liked to photograph New Orleanians' mm -hmm. characters, and one of the main aspects in New Orleans is the love of dressing up or costuming <laughs> for almost any occasion. <laughs> and so I thought when I found out about their, their costumes with their fans and, and, you know, just how colorful they were, and then the movement uh, you know, the dancing is, is uh, wonderful, and the vitality and the joy. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And who, who is this pictured on the cover? What club is this? All right, this is a club that calls themselves the Old and New Style Fellows. Um, and they, the old part is that they don't wear suits, they wear uh, pants with shirts. And the, in the old days, they wore uh, suspenders, colorful suspenders. The original um, huh. costumes were, you know, pretty much less elaborate. Well, so this is a, a yoke instead of suspenders. And then the hats and the shoes, and then this wonderful feathered fan. And then this is a variation on a cane, because the original fellows would maybe carry a cane that they would decorate with ribbons. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, this is all based on the really old traditions. Um, this fellow, is, uh, uh, Tyrone Trouble, uh, is his nickname. <laughs> Wonder why. <laughs> yeah. And he designs every bit of that costume. And wow. his club members, it's a family-oriented mm. club, make them by hand. This is, uh, you know, look at you, this is uh, brocade, mm. all sorts of uh, stitching, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's amazing. Actually, I was going to ask you if, if they hand make these, um, like kind of the Mar Mardi Gras Indians do with their, um, you know, with their costumes, and I think they change them up. The Indians change their costumes every year. Do they... Uh, do the uh, second line oh, clubs change their costumes every year? Absolutely. Something new. Absolutely, something new. As a matter of wow. fact, they had they prayed in the spring. As a matter of fact, their next Sunday, uh, and they had their outfits ready in 2019, but their parade was canceled. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, his uh, troubles mother Sue is sort of the president of the parade, and so she said when they finally you know, got to resume parading. Well, let's just use the ones we already had. And he said, are you kidding? That's not new. <laughs> so they're having all new outfits. Oh my goodness. For, for next uh, Sunday. What do they do with the old outfits? Do they auction them off to raise money or? There are a variety of things, but their closets are full of stuff. Oh, <laughs> and their attics, too, I think. Actually, I've been to Sue's house, and they have, uh, you know, bunches of those mm. standing around, you know. And the shoes, uh, they sometimes wear the shoes later. Mm. And those shoes, they like alligator shoes. Almost all the clubs get alligator shoes, mm. and they get them custom-made, usually in either Spain or Italy, and wow. they cost up to $1,000 a pair. And they get new shoes every year. New shoes every year. Good grief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Support our work by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us so you can help other like-minded listeners find us. Also, visit worldfootprints.com and subscribe to our newsletter for travel resources, news, and event information. A second line is, in effect, a civil rights demonstration. Literally, demonstrating the civil rights of the community to assemble in the street for peaceful purposes or more simply, demonstrating the civil right of the community to exist. Ned Sublette. 
Here's more of our conversation about the history of the second line with photographer Judy Cooper and historian Eric Seaforth. Eric, one of the things that uh, strikes me about, about this uh, particular piece of New Orleans life is that it's focused on family and it's focused on community. And even though the number of clubs have dwindled over time, why do you think it's, 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 it's held on, it's, it's been able to survive for so many generations? Uh, I mean, I think you, you nailed it. It's, it's the family aspect and um, the tradition of going out on Sundays in the afternoon to see a parade, even if you're not in a club, um, is, is just pervasive. And, and I mean, it's uh, addictive too. You go out on a Sunday on a beautiful day and you can smell the barbecue, get yourself something to drink. You know, you see everyone's just seeing each other, catching up. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks, what's going on? There are different clubs that aren't parading, you know, talking about their plans. And then the parade starts and you have the music and, and, and the club comes out and you see what they're wearing for the first time. I mean, I think that um, it just, is uh, such a wonderful experience that it, it grabs people in the city and they when they want to keep being a part of it. But the family aspect is really um, important too. And, and you'll see kids, um, and a lot of clubs have kids divisions. So okay. some of the clubs will have enough members that they'll have multiple divisions. Mm -hmm. You know, a division might be 10 to 12 people and each division gets its own brass band and they come out separately and a lot of the clubs have kids divisions where you'll see you know six seven eight year olds dressed up like everybody else and dancing um and doing all all the moves and um and it's just really uh cool to see um and so they grow up in the tradition this is their tradition coming out on a sunday and and spending the year together getting ready for the parade and um, um yeah i think it's really important for for the, the 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 people who are kind of the 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 leaders now, people like Sue Press, um, uh, Linda Porter um, uh, of the Lady Buck Jumpers, and so many other club leaders to inculcate the kids in the tradition, mm -hmm. so that it'll continue. Con continuing is really important. We saw that in the exhibition and in the book when we talked to clubs. Continuing. The tradition was of utmost importance, so it, it's really a, 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 a big part of it, um, too. And they do outreach to schools and to the kids in their community, raising uh, you know, fundraisers for backpacks with school supplies or, you know, um, whatever it is, giving out turkey dinners on Thanksgiving, which is something uh, Sudan has done in the past. So there's a connection with the community, too, that helps and connects with the kids in the communities that they're a part of. Um, so all of that is, is kind of uh, the, the glue that keeps it going over time. These costumes are so flamboyant, so colorful, and I can imagine there's like a healthy rivalry amongst the clubs here as to who can outdo the yeah, other. Yeah. I, I wonder how that's played out in terms of seeing how, how the clubs stay at the cutting edge and are upping their games year after year. Uh, they, there is definitely, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that, and that's one of the reasons that uh, you know all of the clubs go to each other's parades so they can see what they're wearing. Ah. You know, there is one uh, club 
uh, the Uptown Swingers. It's the last last parade of the year at the end of June. And the, the president, he designed and helped make the costumes. And he says, we're the last parade and they're going to be talking about us till next year. <laughs> He's so proud of that. You know? And the color of the, uh, of the outfits is a very closely guarded secret. Hmm. Nobody is supposed to know it until wow. they come out that door at the beginning of the parade. As many of us know, gospel music has its roots in the African-American spirituals sung by enslaved people. And the spirituals enabled the enslaved to communicate and share information with each other because they weren't allowed to talk to each other in the cotton fields. So we asked if the second line also had its roots in the oppression of black people. Well, that's a great question and a complicated answer. But uh, I mean, I think um, one of the things that is really powerful in the second line tradition is this idea of taking civic space um, and taking ownerships, particularly in places that otherwise are off limits. So, um, you know, this, you see this going back um, centuries where uh, specifically if you think about Jim Crow, so just after Reconstruction's over and there's a repressive regime um, to reassert white supremacy and these clubs are forming and, on, and, and they're going out into public space performing loud music and asserting their control and their part, part of civic life in the city. And it continues into the 20th century. Um, and I think that part of the tradition remains. I think it's really powerful. Um, you see it, you know, going back further even to, 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 to Congo Square, right? When people are gathering in the city, um, and in taking space. Um, there's another two moments that I think are really interesting that I'll mention briefly that happened uh, during the Civil War in, in, in New Orleans. And one of them is a funeral for a um, Afro-Creole soldier. And um, he, uh, he, he, his funeral procession includes all these different Clubs. He was part of a, of a voluntary association of a club, a few clubs actually, and they wind all through the city uh, with music. And we have images of this. And in fact, it's reported as far away as, as New York in the New York Times, this funeral. Um, and this funer funerary tradition continues to this day. Um, just a few years later, there is a large parade to celebrate emancipation in the city. Um, and this comes in, in 1864 here in New Orleans and the parade again is made up into divisions uh, with bands and uh, fraternal organizations, mutual aid organizations, school kids, and they go all through town performing music uh, and, and having this amazing procession. So I think that that aspect of it is one of many uh, it related to, what, to, to, to how um, systems of slavery have impacted uh, the second line practice, um, but it's is, is really an interesting and powerful uh, one. Mm -hmm. I know uh, uh, you just had an exhibit uh, and, and I'm wondering if you can share what did we miss? Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, well, um, so uh, we uh, put on an exhibition uh, 
Dancing in the Streets mm -hmm. and came uh, with the book, um, opened in February of, of last year and ran for about four or five months. And um, we, uh, we looked at kind of this history. You know, we had uh, some, we had images of that funeral I mentioned. Uh, we had film of, of parades from, from the 60s, photos from the, from the, dating back to the 40s of, the, of, of parades. Um, and then we talked about some of the different clubs like the YMO and we worked with 30 different club leaders on this project and and um, and um, and culture bearers, uh, including uh, two Sylvester Francis who operated the Backstreet Cultural Museum in Treme and Ronald Lewis, who had a, a museum in the lower ninth ward, the House of Dance and Feathers. We worked with both of them as well as I should mention uh, Action Jackson. Um, all three of them have since tragically passed away. Mm -hmm. So we dedicated the project to them. We had items from their museums. They were really the first uh, people to put, to create museum spaces around this history and culture. So we wanted to honor them in, in our display. Um, if you go online to hnoc.org slash second lines, you can see the um, products that we've made that exist outside of that exhibition. So there's a virtual exhibition where you can see some of the items and hear club members talk about the history. Um, we produce 30 club narratives uh, where the uh, club leaders tell the stories of their clubs and you can read those narratives and, and, and learn about those clubs. Um, so uh, there's still a lot online and of course Good. the book. And so sure. we kind of, created this large community of people working on this project from Judy to the clubs. Uh, we worked with the Neighborhood Story Project, it's another local organization, um, and those two museums I mentioned. So um, it was really uh, an amazing experience that we um, were able to continue through the uh, mm -hmm. struggles of the pandemic, which, you know, stopped the second lines, and but we got, we got we got through so well I'm, I'm so grateful that you both uh, preserved this important history for all of us to enjoy and uh, and I'm very grateful that the uh, exhibition is available online um, as we wrap up uh, you know because we are a socially conscious travel show I have to ask you a travel related question <laughs> <laughs> if either of you and I'll ask you each uh, individual if you could travel to your favorite country um, and sit next to anybody you want, past or present, who would that be? You want to go first? Jim? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> Goodness. Oh my gosh, yeah, I have, uh, I don't know where to start. Yeah. Uh, France is one of my favorite countries, mm -hmm. but I can't think of who I would want to talk to necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, right off the top of my head. <laughs> the first person who comes to mind is, is uh, the right answer. Edith Piaf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that'd be nice. That's a good one. Um, you know, I, lo I love uh, traveling to France as well. I haven't been anywhere in so long, uh, sadly. Uh, the last place I went that I had a, uh, an amazing experience was Sicily. I'd love to go back. Um, and I'd love to, to spend a dinner on a family farm and have, uh, have a meal with, with uh, somebody 
whose name we don't know, but who was, uh, you know, important in that, in that time. So. Uh, and what what is that person's name? Oh I, no, I, I I don't know. Just oh, a, just okay. an just yeah. an everyday <laughs> uh, everyday person, you know, yeah. that to see to to, to, to experience the, the life on yeah. on their farm. Oh, well, it would be kind of fun to go to Italy and talk to Leonardo, for instance. That would that be, be a good oh, one. Yeah, that would be, yeah. that would be a good one. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for for joining us uh, for sharing your craft and uh, for giving us something to uh, you know to reflect back on and, and see where traditions, uh, very strong traditions in New Orleans and probably beyond, uh, have started. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. I'm so sorry we missed the Dancing in the Streets exhibit, um, which closed just before we arrived. But for everyone, the exhibit is available online at hnoc.org. That's the Historic New Orleans Collection.org. And I want to thank the Historic New Orleans Collection for hosting us. This was really, you know, this facility, this campus is really a gem that's hidden in plain sight within the French Quarter. Plain sight, yes, but it's because of the way that the buildings are scattered throughout. Sometimes you don't recognize that they're there. And so sometimes you just might see a sign just sticking off the side of a building, letting you know that's part of the collection. And the other part is the research. And you know, there's a lot of people who go there to research the history and culture of New Orleans. It's, it's, it's really a gem. And speaking of gems, you know, Judy's photography in this book, Dancing in the Streets, it's spectacular, dear. I could only aspire to be as good as she, she is one, one day. Um, the history is just incredible. Uh, the, the colors of the, the suit, are um, vibrant and I'm so glad that we were able to share this little bit of history uh, with our audience. So it's one of those things that makes New Orleans history and culture so interesting. Absolutely. One of a kind. Absolutely. In closing, let's consider the words of Chris Rose, the Pulitzer Prize writer from the Times-Picayune. You can live in any city in America but New Orleans is the only city that lives in you. <laughs> we're Tanya Indian Fitzpatrick, and we're so happy that you're here. It's our pleasure to feed your wanderlust and to share our beautiful human tapestry with you. Please support us with a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love for you to join our community, so please subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter from our website at worldfootprints.com. Our newsletter is full of travel news, tips, and resources, including our favorite links. Thank you so much for your support and for giving us the space to share the world through the stories we offer on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. 
Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.